0: Uh, Thank you very much for your welcome. It began to sound like an obituary. (laughs) Uh, In which case I would be present at my own obituary. Um, Thank you very much for your welcome to uh, Truett uh, Seminary here at Baylor. Um, Yesterday I spoke a little bit about the uh, new world roots of world Christianity, the way in which social revolution was created which launched Christianity as a movement from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Today I want to look at evangelical religion and the social transformation that I spoke about yesterday and how this was transmitted to West Africa. We have to remember that for many, many centuries after the eclipse of the church in North Africa, few people, few leaders in the church had Much idea or any interest in penetrating to sub Saharan Africa. That was the legend of Prester John, and people thought perhaps that resided in Ethiopia. But Ethiopia only began to make a ripple on the consciousness um, of Europe well into the 15th century, when at the Council of Constance, representatives from Ethiopia turned up almost unannounced and no one took any notice, and then a few years later they turned up in Rome uh, with, I believe, a leopard uh, as a gift to the Pope to encourage him to send a mission to Africa. It was not until after the Reformation that Loyola himself, Ignatius Loyola, uh, volunteered to lead a mission to Africa. It would be the first such Jesuit mission anywhere at all. So Africa lay very much on the periphery of the consciousness of the Christian world. But all of this really changed, as I suggested yesterday, um, with the uh, onset of the American Revolution, the evangelical awakening, and the anti-slavery movement. And I described how uh, repatriated blacks from The South, uh, Philadelphia, New York, and eventually to Nova Scotia in Canada uh, led the movement to attack the slave trade at the source of the trade uh, rather than only at the demand end of the chain. The idea of Christianity as political and social pedigree an investiture of the king, of the monarchy. Um, this idea had been tried in Africa for 300 years and at the time of the American Revolution in 1776, it had collapsed. There was not one single active mission active anywhere in Africa in the year of the American Revolution. It's quite astonishing if you think about it. But God moves in mysterious ways. The new phase that I described belongs really with the story of these African-Americans who from Nova Scotia went to Sierra Leone to provide the basis for trying a new uh, mission to the African continent. The new society they had in view had at at its core, at its center, a very simple but very potent idea. And that is that the individual, redeemed by God, was the root and branch of society, politics, and law. The congregation, as the body of gathered saints, what the Puritans called the visible elect, inspired the open town meeting as the appropriate form of government here in the United States. And the habit of regular church attendance and lay responsibility became the model for the conception of a social covenant between the governor and the governed. Furthermore, the language of open and equal access to God generated the idea of popular democracy. People who had a notion of their equal standing before God would not want to normalize a political system as a caste system among themselves And since the real test of human welfare was the individual being persuaded of God's gracious and unconditional acceptance, then a political community that was worthy of the name would enshrine the religious principle of toleration and freedom of conscience as inalienable rights of the person, sinner, and saint alike. I have to remember, I have to remind you again, because some of you were not here yesterday, that the Founding Fathers conceived of America as a political community. Yes, it's a political compact, but also as a moral community. And the two really overlapped. The Declaration of Independence began, all of us are created equal and endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If you take, I like to boil things down to meat and potatoes. If you summarize that in three ideas, you would say the Declaration of Independence was arguing that the idea of America is grounded on three principles. Life, the gift of God. Freedom, God created us in freedom and delights in our freedom not in our enslavement. But the third is a little awkward, the pursuit of happiness. (laughs) And actually it would be much better to speak about the pursuit of justice or to put it in the language of the Puritans, the pursuit of righteousness, God's righteousness, God's justice. Now if you take those three, life, God created life. Life is not the gift of the state. (laughs) It's the gift of God. If you take freedom, the Puritans believed that freedom was an attribute of God. And Jefferson, many centuries after Cornelius Hodges and Milton, 100 years after Milton, Jefferson argued that the American experiment in democratic liberty will succeed because of who God is. And this idea was picked up, actually, by John Dewey later on. You have to see that these three principles, the gift of life, the gift of freedom, and the divine righteousness, create not just a political community, but a moral community, necessarily. And I'm arguing that it is this, this notion which was taken by Americans across the Atlantic to begin a new epoch in the history of mission and of the church. The intellectual roots then of this idea um, can be pursued in the careers of several Africans. Uh, Philip Kweku, William Amo of Ghana, Jacob Protein, and Frederick Swane, all based in West Africa, 18th century figures. These Africans call attention to conditions existing in African societies. They drew on reliable, verifiable in, in information and up-to-date facts to appeal to European leaders and public opinion on the need to push for change in Africa. Slavery was what, draw, what drew Europe and Africa together, and anti-slavery should also draw them together. And that was how the anti-slavery movement began in England under the leadership of Thomas Clarkson. And this movement of anti-slavery, in order to attack the sources of slavery, gathered factual knowledge of African conditions that were undergirded by an Africa-centered point of view with Africa, Africa's view of things being allowed to inform and to guide European sentiments towards Africa. It became quite clear that the leading agents of this scientific engagement with Africa uh, would include Africans themselves, um, especially those victim populations who had paid the price of the um, trade in slaves. But notice what this means. If you're going to abandon a top-down view of Christian mission on society, then you will not be able to rely on chiefs and rulers to bring about the social revolution necessary to end the slave trade. And that's the social revolution. And that means that the old missionary model that had been effective in Europe and elsewhere, Constantinian model of the church, that you go and convert the king, the chief, the prince, This model had to be smashed, had to be abandoned. The chiefs were not the allies of mission. They were the enemies of mission. (laughs) Now, that was how the anti-slavery movement picked up on this notion that the missionary movement itself had within it the seeds of the new and the future society. Chiefs and rulers were at best questionable models for social justice and at worst, the sources of injustice themselves. The best hope for Christianity and civilization had to adopt a path that bypassed these chiefs, or at least reduced their role in the new society, whether through conversion of the chiefs themselves and their incorporation or their exile and distancing. The evidence on the ground, supported this idea that if mission is going to succeed and attack the sources of slavery, a new way had to be found. And for that reason, the enterprise of slavery's victims themselves um, would be the greatest asset available to the missionary movement. Chiefs and local rulers had been indispensable collaborators of slavery, their power the staff and comfort of slave traders. The chiefs supported the slave system. They divided up the land into spheres of influence. They organized raids, ransoms, and markets. They processed captives. They signed agreements. They provided security. They enforced directives. Historians might plead that the slave trade corrupted chieftaincy power diverting it from its original high purpose of community solidarity, military protection, and political security for their peoples. But the chiefs benefited from the slave trade, so that when they blamed the slave trade for their wars, they were merely complaining that they could have had their cake as well as eaten it. Therefore, the new design of society excluded them and placed emancipated and industrious Africans at the heart of the enterprise. By their cumulative example of hard work, a sober lifestyle, honesty, social activism, self-denial, public benevolence, and public service, these former victims would establish a new kind of society based on equality, the rule of law, and individual enterprise. A company was created uh, called the Serlion Company, and the directors reported that these African Americans agitated to have a jury system established when the governor and the council dismissed one of them for showing disrespect to his superiors. On that occasion, I quote from the company report, they applied to have the law established that no Nova Scotian working for the company should in future be turned off unless after a verdict by a jury of his peers. First time such an idea had occurred in Africa. In a detailed memorandum on the social conditions of the settlement, The Chief Justice in 1816 said that he spared no effort, and I quote from the source, to inculcate with the utmost and unaffected earnestness in the minds of the settlers that they are all equally free, all entitled to the same encouragement and protection, all possessed of the same right without distinctions, as well as liable to the same penalties for infringing the rights of others and all alike objects of the paternal care and constant solicitude of the common government. A steady adherence to this principle and the undeviating application of it to practice promise the most salutary effect and with the aid of the measures which the governor has already adopted and is preparing to put in execution for the good government and prosperity of this colony, bid fair to prove for his administration here, the enviable honor of being among the most useful of the investments employed by Providence for the benefit of mankind. It's a very interesting idea here that government is the servant of the people, not the masters. (laughs) So that public office is sacred public trust. It happened that that this new view of the New World Order was vigorously promoted by the leaders of the anti-slavery movement, who were also, many of them at least, leaders of the evangelical movement. And they were all too aware of the radical social implications of the cause they were championing in Africa. And they appealed to the public, not only as a reading public, but um, in a new age as a society that in their words, was being turned on its hinges to be let in a new dispensation of learning, religion, and life. In such a society, the African element would contribute largely to the causes that agitate mankind and must have its place in the final product. The vital powers, and I'm quoting from the report, are attracted to it by the force of the charities that make them vital and are amalgamating with that element to form a new basis of society. We must, the leaders of this new society were saying, we must create a new society in Africa based no longer on injustice, exploitation, and force and violence, but based on moral principles. The individual, redeemed by God, consecrated in the service by the Holy Spirit, is the linchpin of society of law and order. Let me take a few examples, because these may be abstract ideas, and (laughs) um, I don't want to make space cadets out of you. Let's look at a few individuals. One of these I mentioned, David George, born in Essex County, Virginia, in 1742. Of his parents, John and Judith, who were enslaved from Africa. George said he remembered as a slave boy fetching water and carding cotton, and then going into the field to farm Indian corn and tobacco until he was 19. He recalls many instances of violence against his family. His brother tried to run away and received 500 lashes for his pains. And George describes in his autobiography, published in 1795, they washed his raw back with salt and water, whipped it in, as well as rubbed it in with a rag, and then directly sent him to work in in the field, pulling off the suckers of tobacco. I also have been whipped many a time on my naked skin and sometimes till the blood has run down over my waistband, but the greatest grief I I then had was to see them whip my mother and to hear her on her knees begging for mercy. His master's cruelty drove George to run away and eventually he passed into the ownership of a slave master in Silver Bluff, South Carolina. After his conversion in the revival movement that I described yesterday, uh, David George said he got himself, quote, and I quote here, a spelling book and began to read. I used to go to little children to preach me A, B, C. They would give a lesson which I tried to learn and then I would go to them again and ask them if I was right. The reading so ran in my mind that I think I learned in my sleep as really as when I was awake and I can now read the Bible and so that while I have in my heart, I can see again in the scriptures. George was eventually baptized uh, by one brother Palmer. I don't think many Baptists know about David George, but he was one of the greatest pioneers of the Baptist uh, church in the 18th century. He founded many white churches. He couldn't register himself because he was black. Um, And he had his white parishioners registered the churches that he founded. But he was baptized by Brother Palmer, uh, a, new, uh, a Connecticut New Light Preacher uh, in the mold of Samuel Hopkins. George lived in Savannah, Georgia, until the British took the town and his master fled. When the British decided to evacuate Charleston, George was given a choice about leaving for Nova Scotia, which he took. After 22 days of passage, he arrived in Halifax in 1782, just before Christmas. After six months of enforced idleness, he was allowed to move to Shelburne, where his wish to minister to the blacks as a a missionary uh, was opposed by the whites living there. Said George in his autobiography, I began to sing the first night in the woods at a camp, for there was no houses then built. The black people came far and near. It was so new to them. It was so new to them. What George is describing here is quite extraordinary because this is the first time in the history of Christianity that we have the first mass movement of non-European converts into the religion. Anyhow, in Canada, George pursued his missionary work among both blacks and whites. To his disappointment and surprise, he found obstacles in the religious work. A gang of 40, 50 strapping fellows, disbanded soldiers, all of them marched menacingly on George's house and overturned it, threatening worse fate for the meeting house should he persist with his missionary work. On card, David George would stand amidst the ruins and at an appointed time hold forth on the word of God. Uh, in his words, till they came one night and stood before the pulpit and swore how they would treat me if I preached again. By the time David George was introduced to the West African idea, really a idea of settlement, he had been living in fear of his life or else of a rapid slide into economic servitude. emigration to West Africa as an explicit religious experiment a mission um, would have David George would have found attractive on grounds of principle alone. he was a committed missionary at heart. but when that interest coincided with arguments of personal safety it was irresistible. George had then been presiding at a religious meeting, When John Clarkson, the brother of Thomas Clarkson, found him, um, Clarkson admitted, I never remember to have heard the psalms sung so charmingly in my life before. And that according to Clarkson, seeing David George in action convinced him that no business or person or rank was capable of deterring him, and I quote from Clarkson, from offering up his praises to his creator. Clarkson made him, along with Thomas Peters, I described yesterday, and John Ball, supervisors of the evacuation and the expedition to West Africa. George himself signed up his own family of six, 49 of his flock uh, who joined him, and together they would follow John Clarkson as the unlikely Pied Piper across the sea to the coast of Africa. After a passage of seven weeks, and I quote from the journal, in which we had very stormy weather, they made landfall in Freetown in March 1792, with the high mountain at some distance from Freetown, which was peak blending with the clouds, appearing like a shifting mass. To them, the settlers lost no time to show why they came, with David George again stirring with the abounding energy of the missionary entrepreneur. He wrote, I preached the first Lord's Day, it was a blessed time. Under a sail and so I did for several weeks after, we then erected a hovel for a meeting house, which is made of posts put into the ground and poles over our heads, which are covered with grass. David George continued to be active on both the political and religious fronts trying to ensure that his people's status before God as carrying no stigma had his earthly counterpart in liberty without prejudice. David George visited London in 1793, the year after George Carey um, left for India. And the colony chaplain, Melville Horn, sent a letter of introduction with David George to meet John Newton The author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton, who was himself a slave trader on the West African coast. Notice here what the evangelical movement is doing. Letter of introduction, David George, born in the United States, worked in South Carolina, moved to Canada, is now in West Africa, is going to connect up with London, You see the network. Anyhow, um, the London trip uh, convinced David George to stress the importance of mission. And also, very interesting, the idea that mission was the work of Christians, and I quote from the document, of all denominations, interdenominational approach. Mission has probably done more to lessen friction among denominations than any similar movement in Christianity. And the roots of it go back to this 18th century new world idea of church and mission from the bottom up, not from the top down. You know, the church is not defined by <laughs> theological statements, creedal statements from the top down. The church is practiced from the bottom up, the people of God. Um, George returned to Sierra Leone, and he wrote to his English friends words of encouragement. Um, "I want to know," he said in his letter, "How religion flourishes in London." London was in a terrible state. Those of you who know your English history would know that uh, London was <laughs> was pretty bad, pretty bad. Street life was pretty rough. Uh, And there were then what they called gin lanes, a lot of alcoholism was a major problem, major social problems, Uh, um, orphans, um, prostitution, um, street life with very little care for those people. The evangelical movement um, was a social movement in that regard, Um, ministry to the prisoner, to the seafarer, to to the downtrodden to the um, disbanded soldier who had nowhere to go, et cetera, et cetera. And it picks up a very ancient Christian theme uh, from the early church uh, and the second century already when the early Christians wrote that one of the first things they did was to create a benevolent fund (laughs) to take care of Christians among themselves because Christianity then was persecuted in the Roman Empire. David George had also a Pan-African vision for the mission of the church, not only be restricted to West Africa, but to the whole of the continent. And the idea of mission for David George was the revival of the work of God. He used the word revive. God's work revives here among the natives of Africa. This theme again of the work of social rehabilitation, moral reform, with the blacks victims themselves at the center uh, permeated the entire outlook of the settlers. Brought low by enslavement, broken by removal, and stripped of any chance of personal recovery by the vagaries of multiple slave ownership. The settlers saw in the whole enterprise Something of a second chance. That's my other name for mission of this bottom-up approach. It's a second chance view of the work of God. People have a second chance. God will give us a second chance. Religion and personal industry made an incredible combination. In the person of another famous 18th, 19th century African American, Paul Coffey, who was born in Massachusetts, um, the youngest of seven brothers and sisters. Uh, He was born in Dartmouth in 1759. And in 1778, uh, he was uh, purchased by a Quaker, (laughs) yeah, you are right, a Quaker uh, family Um, He received instruction early and at the age of 16 uh, when his master had freed him, he joined the whaling trade and made his first voyage to the Gulf of Mexico and a second voyage to the West Indies. With success assured, David George, I mean Paul Coffey took on the maritime world and in 1800 commissioned the larger 162 ton vessel, the Hero, which, in one of his voyages, rounded the Cape of Good Hope. And in 1806, he fitted out two ships, a 268-ton vessel, the Alpha, which made a trip from Wilmington and Savannah to Sweden, eventually returning to Philadelphia. The other ship, the Traveler, in which he owned three-quarters share, um, was the vessel he used to cross the Atlantic himself, to West Africa. David George is a very interesting character. Um, I'm going to pass over details now, um, just to um, uh, emphasize several themes um, in, David, in Paul Coffey which were important to the idea of the new Christian experiment in West Africa. Paul Coffey met the chiefs and he describes an encounter with one of the chiefs. Um, Coffee, being a Quaker, he was a teetotaler. And the chief wanted, above all, guns and especially alcohol, rum. And David George, I mean, Paul Coffee, said he gave him here, yeah, I served him with victuals, but it appeared that there was rum wanting, but none was given. The chief was obviously disappointed. Coffee's reception by the governor was also very cool. And um, I think he, he left rather disappointed. But his intention in going to West Africa, it's very interesting, economic enterprise notion here was to establish at the base of the slave trade. Um, um, a kind of transatlantic uh, the three-cornered trading operation. Tropical produce obtained through scientific cultivation in Africa would be carried in ships owned by blacks to America and the profits would be used to establish more African-Americans in West Africa. And so the cycle would be repeated and that way the slave trade would be strangled. Coffey made representations on the issue of slavery when he returned to the United States among what he called enlightened Methodists. At the New York Methodist Conference, he sent a petition called the Epistle of the Sierra Leone Society that demanded that Africans held in bondage be liberated, that blacks should be freed of Paul Coffey called the galling chain of slavery that they may be liberated and enjoy liberty that God has granted unto all his faithful saints. Uh, Among the many who signed this petition were some of the most remarkable African American leaders in West Africa at the time. James Wise, Moses Wilkinson, who was actually an old preacher from Virginia, Nancy Munn, went to Nova Scotia and then went to Freetown, the governor of the colony said he found Moses Wilkinson preaching one Sunday. He had gone there with a magistrate's warrant. (laughs) You don't trust these preachers. They are not educated. And so he was sitting at the back listening to Moses Wilkinson preach. Moses Wilkinson was nearly blind. He was illiterate. All he knew of Christianity were the enormous Uh, mounds of psalms and scripture he memorized. And he would stand in the pulpit and preach from memory, uh, quoting the psalms uh, at liberty. And the uh, governor sitting in the back was so moved um, by Moses Wilkinson that he marveled that God should use such simple souls uh, to bring so many into the Divine Presence, Uh, quite a testimony. Uh, Again, an example of the bottom-up view. Here is a guy who had been a former slave in Virginia. Uh, He was blind, he was lame, uneducated, uh, and yet he had memorized the Psalms and was preaching with such effect. One of the most interesting developments in this community was the role, was the leadership role of women. One of them was Mila Baxton, who actually kept church meeting house in her own home. Um, measures were taken for poor relief, organizing the converts for the purpose uh, to meet once every month and to take a collection uh, to try and help the poor. <clears throat> uh, and then Coffey describes in detail the moral virtues uh, of such a society. Kofi addressed a memorial when he returned to the United States, to the President of the United States and to Congress in June 1813. And there he made clear to Congress and to the President that he wished to see in Africa established a model society on new foundations altogether. The fundamental rule to be established in Africa, Coffee felt, would be the rule of equity and justice requiring the secession of the trade in slaves. A new society thus conceived would require raising a new foundation, conducive to producing wholesome and practical fruit. What they needed in Sierra Leone, Paul Coffey pleaded before Congress, was a sawmill, a millwright, a plow, and a wagon on which to haul loads rather than people carrying loads on their heads. He pledged to Congress that he would commit his own resources to promote the improvement and the civilization of Africa and thus help to avert from the people of Africa the curse which the slave trade had brought. He would lay before the American people a challenge, and I quote from Paul Coffey's memorial, a challenge in the expectation that persons of reputation would feel sufficiently interested to visit Africa and endeavor to promote habits of industry, sobriety, and frugality among the natives of that country. Now, this is the vision, and clearly there were problems because, you know, people don't give up power easily. The chiefs were going to hold on to their power and fight every effort to strip them of that power. Um, Coffee made one more trip to Africa uh, to confront the chiefs with his new radical vision of equality and justice. Um, And then he returned to the United States. Uh, He would never travel again to Africa. Instead, he devoted his energies to the American colonization societies then um, under the leadership of Robert Finley. Robert Finley was a Presbyterian minister, I think Presbyterians are friends of Baptists too, Um, and who was uh, eventually the president of the University of Georgia, and a major figure in the colonization efforts uh, here in the United States. Paul Coffey wrote to Robert Finley, the great desire of those whose minds are impressed with the subject is to give Opportunity to the free people of color to rise to their proper level and at the same time provide a powerful means of putting an end to the slave trade and sending civilization and Christianity to Africa. In a memorial, to a memorial notice to the Board of Governors of the American Colonization Society, Paul Coffey was recognized by Robert Finley and others for his clear and strong judgment, his informed opinion, his commitment and dedication, and the hands-on experience he had of life in West Africa. The tribute to Paul Coffey ended with making the point that any future engagement with Africa would have to be based on a partnership of a common order, one in which fact and knowledge must replace prejudice and aspersion, and must be judged by, and I quote from the memorial, its usefulness to the native Africans and to their descendants in this country, in the United States. I want now to move in my conclusion to underlining this important shift uh, of view from the top down to the bottom up. I remarked yesterday that the medieval conception of Christianity had in it the idea of Christianity as territorial faith, a religion woven into the fabric of the state, of society, and of language. The establishment of the faith required its adoption by the ruler and the nobility, and the rest of society would then be evangelized. Or not, if they're not evangelized, they'll be subdued. In that scheme, territorial conquest was necessary to Christian expansion, just as political patronage was essential to religious custom. In New England society, high society, for example, the abolitionists stood for a despised cause, to quote from a contemporary account, and that those who came out of the agreeable circle of New England aristocracy were made to feel that it was a choice between the slave and the friends of their youth. And that's how Theodore Parker lamented, that's how he lamented the fact that his fellow New England clergyman refused to exchange pulpits with him because he was in favor of abolition. My life, Parker lamented, seems to me a complete failure socially. And that one example shows you the enormous courage needed to challenge this old medieval view that only the aristocracy, the nobility, those who are privileged are also those fit to carry the Christian banner. The old theology as a pillar of liberal society shared this reactionary outlook with the respectable New England colleges basking in the glow of an ascendant enlightenment notion. It was really the awakening that shook up both Harvard and Yale. It was then this high-minded culture that evangelical religion, in the end, challenged, and one would have to say defeated. Um, The efforts at freedom, religious instruction, education, economic improvement, political self-reliance represented for blacks a departure from hallowed precedent. The free people in our society, George Lyle wrote, are but poor, but they are willing, both free and slave, to do what they can. As for my part, I am too much entangled with the affairs of the world to go on as I would with my design in supporting the cause. This I have, I acknowledge, been a great hindrance to the gospel in one way, but as I have endeavored to set a good example of industry before the inhabitants of the land, it has given general satisfaction in another way. Lack of material resources is no excuse. for not embracing this new view of society, whether poor, whether slave, whether oppressed. I remember one of my students asking me, I can't remember whether it was at Harvard or Yale, she said to me, how can people who are poor and who have been enslaved, how can they be Christian? And my answer was, for such is the gospel of God. In the General Dispensation, it was generally agreed that the Word of God belonged not only with the pillars of high society, but with those who are at the very head. Uh, Kings, the monarchy, the nobility, like Charlemagne, Constantine, King Alfred of England, Bartha, Queen of um, Kent, In dark despair, Agamemnon had once urged upon the ancient Greeks, his bewildered compatriots, to to undertake one more final journey towards advancement with the words, let us flee to our own country. On the eve of their departure from Nova Scotia, the settlers had indulged in dreams of providence and abundance and spoken of how they would soon kiss their dear Malaketa, a reference to the Malaketa pepper that was for them like grains of paradise. They were looking for a land of abundance, a land of milk and honey. So this historical flotsam and jetsam, religious teaching would take them and through them overcome the arts of history and offer them a second chance, offer the world a second chance. The day had arrived when, to quote Samuel Brown, another settler, men and women have been awakened and struggled into liberty by the exercise of faith and prayer and rejoice in the full assurance of being children of God. People who, to cite another contemporary, were mighty able to divide the word of truth for themselves and for others. It was the view that this new evangelical Christian movement, or their version of it, was the exception to the law of the survival of the fittest. The new society then, created in Sierra Leone, involved a change in philosophy, from looking to princes and rulers and the nobility, the fittest of the fit, to focusing on social rejects, economic victims, the repressed and the suppressed, who might be reclaimed, trained, and equipped to lead useful, industrious, and exemplary lives, a restoration program that opened the way for people at the bottom of the social heap. And this change was without precedent, and it affected much of Africa and shaped its history into modern times. In fact, one could argue that it created that history. And to understand it, I've argued we must turn our gaze from corporate Christendom of old Europe, of Charlemagne and the Carolingian Empire, to the voluntary association of the New World. Thank you.